I'm Matthew Bosher and welcome to the show. Brendan Carney and I talked to multidisciplinarian Johnny Parker about making an international career step and what brought him home again. Johnny describes going from hometown notoriety to obscurity and how he adopted a growth mindset to add a fascinating chapter to his creative journey. So for those of us who aren't familiar with your whole portfolio, can you give us a brief overview of your creative history from music, acting and directing? I started screwing around in high school and getting into um, filmmaking and, and music simultaneously. And I, I you know, went to film school uh, straight out of high school and, um, and through that I got an acting agent and uh, following that up I just uh, eventually started directing, making all sorts of bits and pieces and then while I was making music, naturally started making my own music videos and music videos for friends' bands and that was sort of the birth of my directing uh, or taking directing a little more seriously and then... Um, yeah, ever since, it's just been chasing those three paths as far as they'll take me. It was funny you say, um, you know, making film in school. The f- earliest I think I remember uh, film that you did was The Janitor. Uh, yeah, bots. <laughs> <laughs> you guys had taken taken that scene of that exploding building from Bad Boys? Yeah, man. So high school, making, uh, making you know, trying to, you know, emulate filmmaking was the best. So we had this great teacher who knew that we were not interested in writing our essays and, you know, taking school too seriously. It was like, oh my God, these clowns, you know, this guy's never going to pay attention. Here, here's a camera, you know. Um, so he set us free and we had, we had like the Panasonic M40, which is this classic VHS camera. And uh, they had two VCRs and a little sound mixer. And we learned how to edit by splicing, which means you play it. You know, you shoot a piece of video, you play the video in the first layer and you record it on the second while, you know, pressing pause, queuing up the first shot, pushing record and play at the same time, then pausing, queuing up the next shot and having to do that for your entire film because a a, a VHS machine would switch off after about three minutes, you know, like an auto power off. So we learned how to um, splice in the most, you know, primitive way possible. Uh, which still sticks with me, <laughs> but yeah, the janitor. So we we went and made. I was I was so into the movie Bad Boys at the time. <laughs> still a good uh, movie. <laughs> it's so good, being the nineties, and uh, uh, yeah, it took explosions from. There's like an airport hangar that resembled our school gym. So we uh, we we shot a sequence where we had a, a school janitor. It was Die Hard in a school. You know, the janitor is still there. The terrorists take over, and he tries his best to defeat the bad guys and. It was just leading up to him running out of the gym while it explodes behind him. And so we spliced in this, like, illegal footage. And, uh, <laughs> yeah, that was the beginning, really. Yeah, it was legit. It was it legit. So good. <laughs> Very kind. <laughs> and the VHS uh, aesthetic has kind of stayed with you right through um, you music videos and to your kind of current production aesthetic as well. Mm. I just, yeah, I don't know why. It's like that nostalgia buzz. I just put grainy crappy shit all over everything i just love that look <laughs> i love that feel i have that same affinity with film as well and i really only got to shoot on film a couple of times so i think it's more of like a um you know the films that i grew up on yeah spielberg you know dusty beautiful old film vhs yeah mm. warm place in the heart in regards to music you know you've always had a, a high output of 
you know, music, you know, just constantly outputting music. Um, how did uh, moving to London help or hinder your output? Man, moving to London was, in hindsight, it was, it was fucking awesome. It was really great. Um, before London, you know, fortunate enough to be in tons of projects and work with tons of great people. And then to go to London where you just don't know anybody, don't know where to begin, anything's possible, but also it's fucking terrifying because, you know, you don't know anybody and nobody gives a shit about who you are or where you've come from. Um, but the way it worked out for me, uh, to, to be honest, I went to London, you know, with directing on my mind. Um, I was like, not interested in chasing acting over here. My English accent's so bad, you guys. It's so bad. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, I, par- I parked that. And then I was like, music, uh, not so much. I love music, but I'll, I'll, you know, see what happens. So after about after about six months, maybe maybe a little sooner, actually, maybe about four months in, um, as I was battling my way through trying to get around London, get climatized, you know, get up to speed, meet people, network, do all that shit, I was like... I just feel it in my bones. I need to be playing music. I need to be hanging out with like-minded musicians. Um, and so I found a thing called London Musician Network. And I found, like, one of the first things I looked at was this guy. And it was like, it was like Silence of the Lambs. He's, there's this dude in his little studio, his analog home studio, dancing in the mirror, recording himself, singing to his own song. It was like, it was, it was weird shit. I was like, this is fucking awesome. And, uh, and then the post said like, um, musicians wanted, don't be shy. I was like, oh my God, I'm in. So I messaged this guy straight away and I go, Hey man, um, cool shit. I play guitar. And then he's like, sir, I've got a guitar player. I was like, oh, okay. And then he's like, oh, but I don't, you know, I was like, oh no, I was like real, you know, well, what else? I'll play the bass. I play the tambourine. Mm. What do you got? <laughs> uh, he's like, oh, I still need a drummer. So I was like, I can play the drums. And I sent him a Here Comes the Zombies video uh, where I'm thrashing about on the drums. And he was like, oh, fuck, sweet ass. Um, come, wait, you know, he's like, all right, mate. Cool. Come along, you know. Um, and I was like, cool. Yeah, I'm from New Zealand. Fucking sweet ass. He's like, oh, I've got a, I've already got a New Zealander in the band. I was like, oh, okay, cool. This would be weird. So I show up to this guy's house in um, Peckham. Like, try not to get murdered on the way there. No offense, Peckham, but you're fucking terrifying. And um, and I walk in the door, and this dude's like, Joey. And I was like, oh, shit. <laughs> <laughs> Crazy. And you're going to have to explain the reference to Joey as well. It's a pretty deep New Zealand cultural reference right there. Yeah. P- p- for people who don't know me, I was spotted for my the role that I played on Shortland Street um, over 10 years ago uh, as Joey Henderson, the Ferndale Strangler. <laughs> so like I couldn't escape it. It was hilarious. Um I think I got recognized about maybe about five times in my three years I was over there, which is still pretty good numbers. I was quite proud of that. But yeah, so the point of this whole story was I got into this band and was ready to play any instrument just to be around like minded musicians and straight away that opened up worlds for me. Like my confidence was just like boom, I'm having so much fun. I could pour some effort into something. I was getting an instant kickback. I started playing gigs. Um, I was finding my way around London really quickly because I was going to venues and meeting people. And my music network just opened up very quickly. So the whole time I was there, I ended up playing like three bands, uh, made music videos for all of them, made music videos for all their friends' bands and started, you know, getting a role on, on that side. So 
and then eventually I played some of my own music over there as well, which was like a huge buzz. Supporting Jordan Luck, right? Supporting Jordan Luck, yeah. And um, at the Clapham Grand, which was the gig of my life, to be honest. It was really terrific. So um, so to answer your question in this long, long-winded way, going to London and meeting other musicians was terrific. Yeah, and once you were kind of through that gateway of getting access to the network, what was your assessment of the community and the creative health? You know, it felt like the venues were a real challenge. Uh, like in New Zealand, you can be like, oh, hey, Rowan, we want to come down and play at the wine cellar. And he's like, sweet as, Thursday, two weeks. You're like, thanks, cool. He's like, bring a support band. Try to bring some friends, you losers. You know, like, <laughs> you know, and you do it. And it's awesome. It's so supportive. Um, over there, it would be like, almost like pay to play. You had to get in touch with a promoter, try to organize a time, and then they would, you would have to have a, a number of people that you were going to bring through the door and if you didn't have that you'd end up having to pay so it was like you had to seriously commit to putting on a show yeah so there's a a reasonable bar that you've got to clear um sort of a a cost of of entry to the infrastructure of the live scene that's going to hopefully support you to to grow and continue to more creative work Mm, which is a challenge for um young bands starting out um we were lucky. We we sort of we built a, a good little network pretty quickly. Uh, we had a, a good little network of musicians, uh, bands that came together, and would support each other and bring all of our friends together. So we um, sort of dodged that bullet mostly. But there's definitely the odd promoters who were like, "You need to bring fifty people to this gig." I was like, "Fuck! I know about seven people in London." <laughs> <laughs> Where else in um, you know Europe did you explore, and did that influence any of your creativity or music writing man absolutely i think if i was just to dish out advice to any musicians out there it would be travel go and see as much of the world as you possibly can um we managed to go and hit lots of spots through europe um and i think just just seeing other cultures seeing how um seeing how much the audiences get into the music and enjoy themselves compared to New Zealand where it's very sort of standoffish kind of judgy kind of like I'm not here to have a good time I'm here to tell that that guitar player how shitty he is you know like <laughs> um it's exactly what it is that's what it feels like bro yeah <laughs> to be honest man I had I had an experience actually I had an experience at that that gig the gig of my life you know I had the best fucking gig opening up for Jordan Luck and uh, we nailed it. We played great. We went out and we were about to leave the venue. And this dude in a New Zealand Music Month t-shirt, this, this, this dude just bowls up to me as we were like all laughing and like smiling and buzzing out, like peak buzzing out. And this guy comes over and goes, I can't even remember what he said now, but it was along the lines of, uh, you vocals, uh, there's not enough clarity in the way that you enunciate your words. I, 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 he was like, started ripping into me. And I was like, I, bro, <laughs> uh, no shit. I grabbed him by the New Zealand Music Month t-shirt and started marching him towards the front door. And this, ba- this ba- the bouncer, like this lovely lady, she was at the door. She saw me coming and she just opened the door. 
And I like threw him out the door and then she closed it behind. We looked at each other like, yeah. And I was like, yeah. So yeah, I was, I was not having a fucking bar of it, bro. It was like, take your shitty attitude and just park it. You don't have to rip into everybody for everything. Yeah. <laughs> Constructive feedback only. Thank you very much. Yeah. Hard. <laughs> if it's, it's like, if it's not for you, you don't have to comment on it. You mm. know, you don't have to be there. When I'm um, feeling more present and, and have the resilience to take on board feedback in the moment like that, um, I try and think that I'm sure it's coming from a positive place. You know, the intent was probably to help, but the impact was, uh, you're not great. Totally. <laughs> I gave that guy the benefit of the doubt. He actually came in hot and I was like, I was like, threw a bunch of positivity at him. And then he still was just trying to cut through. I have many witnesses who were with me who were like, whoa, yeah, nah. He deserved more than a, than a little shove out the door there. You could, you could have kicked him in the ass on the way out. But yeah, most, most of the time it does come from a positive place and it, and it is appreciated, but he was that special case. And so after this time in London and that kind of mixed bag of experiences, um, you've returned home. And you were starting to reach out to um, your New Zealand collaborators before you arrived. I think just before we visited London and met up with you, you were doing a, kind of an online project uh, remotely with lots of different musicians, including several New Zealanders. Can you talk to us a little bit about that and then the final step of um, what's brought you home and, and what you're focusing on? Yeah, totally. There's a few things there. The, um, the reaching out to... Kiwi artists, uh, you know, friends, um, came from, I actually got some work when I was there composing some soundtrack for, uh, a New Zealand web series. And so I was able to buy, uh, this lovely complete control keyboard and the, um, machine, you know, drum pad, get some equipment, get some new um, plugins. And so I was trying to quickly learn how to use them and how to make make some cool sounds out of it. And so while I was, you know, every day I'd get up and I'd start making demos for the soundtrack and then I was like, oh man, I just really want to accelerate this. And I know that every time I work with other musicians, the music just comes so much quicker and uh, you get a bit of feedback, a bit of bounce back. And so, who was the first one? I'm just trying to think back. I reached out to one of my friends and was like, hey, I've got this bit. What would you put on top on top of it? And then they threw back something. I was like, that was so cool. And I threw one out to Stevie Akin. And then he came back with like this wild, weird song. And I was like, holy shit. This is, this is on. This is a thing. And so uh, we, you know, did a few back and forwards. And it just turned into such a fun, fiery little collaboration. I ended up doing about eight of them and they're, they're still not finished i mean they're all there they they're cool um and i could do like 20 more um so i'm keen to jump back in and finish those but yeah i, I ended up sort of getting uh you know swept away with the uh, composing for the uh the tv stuff so so yeah that little project's still on the on the cards but um yeah in between the two i ended up making a batch of songs or pieces of music uh, that had no home and were all in a certain style like a chill hip-hop kind of style and so I was like man these are just going to disappear so I should just put them out so I put them out under my name Barker and called the the album tapes and it's just a little instrumental batch of noise mm. which is a lovely postcard 
um, from from your time over there. I remember when I heard it, I was making breakfast with my son and uh, just enjoying all the kind of like field recordings from Europe that kind of snuck their way onto these lo-fi beats and very very chill, very enjoyable album. Good spotting, yeah. There's some there's some recordings from France uh, in there. Yeah, the the idea behind those the sort of inspirado was on the tubes in London. It's overwhelming. You know, when you get in there, you guys experienced it. Rush hour, you get in there, you're face to face with like hundreds of people. It's hot, sweating, it's intense. And um, you put your headphones on, you put on some like lo-fi study chill beats or like, you know, whatever. And it just takes you away for a little bit, helps you like stay centered. And so, um, yeah, that was kind of the vibe. It's like just a nice soft escapism background super chill and then transitioning back home what's the focus now well the um none of this was planned but uh it's all worked out beautifully i um came back and started putting my you know my little studio back together uh where i'm sitting now and i was like oh these what mics have i got some of my stuff still on its way back from london the lockdown had it all sort of stuck in transit so i was like what do i have it's like i've got this mic i've got this guitar, these guitars don't work because the inputs are all stuffed, like, you know, so it was a real sort of, what have I got? So I rebuilt my system, uh, and I, and I started off making a couple of little covers, um, and I may, I recorded, uh, started recording Make It With You by Queens of the Stone Age, and I was like, ooh, I could, uh, extend it and then send this to three guitarists, three of our, you know, our guitarists, and so I sent the rhythm tracks to Jared, Kahi and Cole Goodley, the aristocrats. We started putting together a little foundation. And then we sent uh, sent the track to Atlanta. Stevie did his guitar solo. We sent another one to Charlie and Tedarangi. He did his one. And we sent the uh, sent a track to Rabbit in Mumbai. And then he sent his back, shoved it all together and was like, whoa, what a fun formula. Um, in amongst the b- billions of bands that are all doing the lockdown specials. It was just like, yeah, fuck, us too. This is great. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, now we've done a bunch of them. We did some Beatles. We did some Pink Floyd. Working on a Supergrass at the moment. Really fun. Cool. Yeah, nice way to reach out uh, to the boys, you know, find an excuse to get back together. Yeah, I chucked uh, some sneaky synth and on that Pink Floyd track. Oh, you did? Ah, sick. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You didn't even know, Johnny. <laughs> oh, no, I, I, I missed that one. I got busy. They were like, yeah. they said, yeah. like Jared, Jared uh, did a lot of the heavy lifting and was like, um, record this part on. I was like, oh, yeah, yeah, totally. I'll totally learn that. <laughs> and uh, I missed the boat. But I watched it go out and I was like, damn, that one was really good. So I, was, I was very proud, proud of everybody. Yeah. You're part of a quite a community of creatives you know we're all friends and um we've all been in you know same bands and been in the same rehearsal spaces um networks over the years um tell us about the cast of characters you know or relationships that have influenced you uh, or your work to date yeah bro our community is fucking special um so lucky so blessed to have been surrounded by so many uh, wildly talented, generous creatives uh, in filmmaking and in music. Um, I think the music side's pretty self-explanatory. We're all so similar. We're all just trying to 
express ourselves through our creative art form and we all share and we all try to help each other push each other along because you know music's not a fucking competition you know mm. it's like it's the top 40 but nobody gives a shit about the top 40 <laughs> you know what i mean like it's more like bro yeah. do you guys want to go halves on this band room like if you guys pay for a tuesday night and yeah then maybe we've got enough money to buy some beers for the week you know like <laughs> super supportive yeah. i love that shit and then in filmmaking, yeah. I've been extraordinarily lucky and had, uh, uh, you know, Drew Sturge and Simon Tardy, Brendan Morrow, like all these guys, Jared Cahey, just mm -hmm. extraordinarily talented, generous cats who all have their own thing that they're masters at. And then when we find an excuse like a 48 hour or a music video, mm -hmm. we will come together and just like get together and smack it, you know? Mm -hmm. That one um, rehearsal space in Avondale that all of us actually shared. The um, yeah, that was just such a hub of of creativity. Like I, I remember we filmed, you know, forty eight hour film festival stuff there. Um, you know, um, you know some of the short, other short films we did. We were all filmed in there, and you know, then we had all the bands that were practicing there. All the different bands that were in it was such a creative little underground hub. It was great. It was very special. I think it was very cool. And it had a long history as well. The history back went, uh, you know, went back before all of us too. Like it started with, um, it might have even started before Stevie's band, but Revolver uh, were the ones that really sort of kicked that into high gear. They had, they had the room down the hall first, which became the Decortica room eventually down the line. Not to get too confusing here, but essentially Stevie's, Stevie's band had that shit way back. And I remember looking at that room going, damn, this is cool. This smells terrible, but this is fucking cool. And then <laughs> when um, Jared and Cole and I went out and started doing cover band gigs and making some cash, I don't know who set up the transaction or who, who got it started, but we took that room over. And uh, yeah, that was a special spot. So many cool things happened there. And what was it originally? I mean, it was it kind of felt like a underground car park that had been partitioned off um, in kind of a dodgy structural way. Yeah. And I think a lot of people um, during kind of like transient periods of their lives would just kind of put down the guitar after rehearsal and just sleep there. <laughs> yep. I definitely slept down there a couple of nights and it's, it's weird. That's a weird feeling. No windows. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it was actually, uh, as a complete aside, uh, I took a bit of a career sabbatical, I had an opportunity to do so, and I think I was going there most days. I could actually like walk or uh, or bus from home at the time, mm. and um, I got that sense of just that uh, community flow of all these different interesting characters who had come in to shoot a video or to rehearse for... I don't know, a gig on Ponsby Road, which would be making <laughs> yeah. everyone's rent money sort of thing, yeah. <laughs> or trying to get that album that they've been kind of nursing for the last, you know, five years, finally done and, and mm -hmm. released. Um, but the thing that you were talking about before around supporting one another, that was the um, the common ground. It was hugely inclusive. Um, and I think a lot of um, fast and um, long-term friendships were, were made. There was, a, there was an amazing collection of characters in there. There was the the chippy and like who was next door to us for a while. There's this this chippy guy, and they had their band rehearsals on Wednesday night. We'd have our band rehearsals on the same night, and we'd all come out and like everyone's smoking cigarettes. And he'd always be like, 
yeah, man, that song, uh, that song that goes whoop whoop, da, 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 whatever. Yeah, I like that one. Don't like the other ones, though. We're like, oh, cool. <laughs> Thanks for the honesty, man. Um, there's a dude who lived there uh, down the end. He's a little, little sketchy. Uh, oh, that's right. No names. Mm-hmm. And then there was the artist. There was a guy who was an artist who was hanging around. He was making all sorts of bits and pieces. Uh, yeah. Good times. And then that weird band Decortica showed up. They took over for a while. <laughs> and we, we shot a video in there where we made use of the fact that we hadn't quite soundproofed the um, the room. And I think it was, it was really dusty and atmospheric and I think for a um, as, a, as a bit of a, a, well, a massive favour and an experiment. I think we were trying all sorts of interesting stuff with light and dust settling. and That was a good one. I enjoyed that very much. You, uh, you'd said to a, you, you came and said like, Hey man, like, you know, any chance you can sort of film my head against a plain backdrop? Uh, and then we're going to intercut this footage with this movie that's coming out that we're on the soundtrack. And I was like, yeah, let us try. Like, let's maybe we'll just shoot a couple of different sizes, maybe just a little bit more. And you're like, okay, man, sure. And then we ended up coming down and Drew, Drew came in and like smacked it out of the park. Um, it was still very simple. It was just putting you three uh, on show, and then, and then for us, it was like playing with the underground bunker, dropping flour off of like, uh, you know, whiteboards, and <laughs> try to get that shaky bomb, you know, underground feel. Slight J.J. Abrams illusion. Hard, there. yeah. But this is so this is fun. what you do with a lot of your projects, but particularly in um, video directing, where I've had some um, some exposure to that. Mm-hmm. Is it? I go in expecting kind of like a one out of ten with a brief like I just provided to you there, <laughs> and you guys will go uh, to a level ten, and often um, not because there's any you know commercial gain in it, but because you're passionate and you're craftsman and you enjoy the process and you're proud of the output, and so why wouldn't you put your your whole self into whatever endeavor it is? Uh, and I just think that we are so lucky to have um, friends with that much um, talent, but also just time that they're prepared to put into supporting one another's projects. Well said. Man, I wholeheartedly agree. Uh, it works out awesome for everybody if everybody shows up with uh, with 100%, you know, passion, ready to go. Like many, many years on now, I look back to uh, Shinkinzen as one of the coolest things we've ever made, you know. I fly that high on my showreel. I'm like, look how slick this is. Look how cool this is. And But I, I, I remember you explaining, you know, the concept to me. And I was sitting there going, what the fuck is he talking about? Like, what is this, <laughs> you know? And then cut to like two weeks later and we'd location recce, we'd lined it up, Drew showed up and was like, you know, I had the same experience that you just described. We're Drew Sturge as a DOP looks at it a certain way, looks at a space and goes, yeah, yeah, this could work. And I'll go, what? What, what could work? <laughs> like, okay, cool. Then, you know, he cues, you know, hires the, the lighting rig, builds it and sets it up a certain way. And then he puts that lens on it. And then we start playing, you know, we start playing with like energy and movement and knowing the music and knowing the parts, lining that up with lenses and light and rhythm and editing. And you're just like, holy shit. So yeah, such a, such a fun process, whether we all get paid millions or not. It's it's fun every time, you know. So, you've uh, you've taught yourself piano and other instruments. 
being being a you know multi instrumentalist. Uh, how has that changed your songwriting approach or style? Ooh, yeah, I, man, I think that was very handy. Learning a bit about piano. I think of uh, play a bit of guitar. You want to learn a little bit about the drums, and then if you learn a bit about the drums, you want to learn a bit about the bass. <laughs> learn about the uh that that tight rhythm section and then where to put those accents and then once you jump on the piano you're like oh shit it's a little bit of everything you know don't need to be able to play these massive scales or trill out and all that shit just major minor there are the chords learn a bit of push and pull a bit of sprinkle it's super handy super duper handy and now i'm getting into a bit of composing it's crazy handy because i've got this big plug-in set and I can go through a billion sounds um but I think I think not knowing a lot about piano is quite helpful um like keeping it simple you know what I mean mm. yeah and you also did a, a cameo on one of our latest tracks on the piano in London on the boat oh talking about keeping it simple guys <laughs> <laughs> shit that was complicated I, I was so stoked we pulled that off, bro. That was pressure cooker shit, man. Uh, I was, it was entirely down to to your skill because you had to go, and this was like the last kind of twenty minutes of your visit to the studio. Like, oh, can you just learn this thing and play it perfectly, please? Go. <laughs> and I was like, I was like up for the challenge. Like, yeah, piece of piss, play it. And you're yeah, like, I, I can play, I can you, play piano. Yeah, then you play it. And it's in like seven sixteen or something. I'm like, what the? I I can't count and play. And and to be fair, it was kind of written on the piano roll with a, a you know guitarist who knows just enough to be dangerous and not structuring chords in the right way. And you know, between us, we somehow did it, and it was beautiful. We got away with it because we all trust each other. And uh, as as much as I was fucking shitting my pants about it, I knew that Brendan had it on his laptop, fucking figured out how to get it up and running because there were technical issues on the laptop. And I knew he'd, I knew he'd come through. And I knew Matt would be sitting on my shoulder just like, keep breathing. Try this. Try it again. And <laughs> we're like, yeah, don't look at the clock. Don't even think about the <laughs> clock. <laughs> and then we got there and it just it happened. And I was, I was so glad. I'm so stoked to be on the record. Well done, by the way. Yeah. Oh, we were pleased to have you, and I think it, um, it's just one of those yeah. lovely Easter eggs that, you know, when we've released the track subsequently or whenever I come across it, I go, oh, yeah, that happened, and that's just a really nice kind of, um, I don't know, appendix to the whole experience for us that actually we were able to pull together more friends and capture something about a bit special for all of us in our age and stage of life. I liked uh, telling the story to many people. Like, what have you been up to this weekend? I was like, bro, I recorded a piano part on the on a, this big studio boat, uh, you know, with a, with a New Zealand band. They're all like, what? <laughs> like, what did you do this weekend? <laughs> I was expecting you to say, went down the park and got some chips, you know, like, good story. <laughs> Thinking about um, all of your activities and just the sheer volume of bands you've been in, let alone, you know, all of the, the rest of the media production that um, you've been able to, to create over the last few years. I wonder about, you know, what your source material is. What is the stuff that you go back to or the things you like to explore that um, informs the experiences or feels kind of this massive output of content? In a way, I guess I try not to think about it too much. I think, if anything, I just love... 
learning uh, about the craft, about any all crafts that I'm into, not maths. Um, uh, and I like just pushing forwards as well. I, it doesn't mean I don't like looking backwards. I love getting nostalgic and looking backwards and laughing at all the weird shit we've done. Um, but I think, I think uh, learning more about the processes, working with people who know... Um, who are like-minded but know more about another part of a process and then just sharing as much info with them as possible to push each other along um, really gets me going. Um, and I think, I don't know, I guess artistically, like, the turn-ons are just always the same. It's like trying to emulate that feeling that I used to get when I would watch Raiders of the Lost Ark or that feeling I got when I heard Subterranean Homesick Alien for the first time. Um, those like formative experiences are just like, I just, I still feel them now and I feel like that'll never go away. And so um, if I can make a, be a bonus if I can make a living out of chasing that feeling. And even if you don't, that sounds like time well spent. Yeah, fuck. It's not about the money. <laughs> it's, about, <laughs> it's about having a good time, you know. What are the top three songs that you feel are uh, representative of your major, div- you know, stages and and as a musician? I can definitely say um, uh, "Karma Police" by Radiohead. Um, there's a bunch of Radiohead songs that sort of kicked kicked music off for me. Um, but Karma Police would be the one because that was kind of the first real song I learned how to play on guitar. Your brother, your older brother taught me that, uh, which I'll forever be grateful for. Well, Jeff Buckley, uh, I remember hearing the, the album Grace for the first time. So I'd, I guess I'd pull like Mojo Pin off Grace. Just hearing like how special and acrobatic like performance and vulnerability and like wild expression uh can be and then i guess i just gotta go for the hits it's like i don't know no one knows by the queens of stone age just like huge heavy filthy take no prisoners get fucked production fucking balls to the wall fucking heavy music like i just got such a soft spot for burning the house down with the loudest music possible I think that really tells the story of what we've seen of you in the last 10 years, indeed. You know, you've got, now walking backwards, kind of the Here Come the Zombies, which is your Queens of the Stone Age sort of homage. Hard. <laughs> and the Buckley stuff, um, I hear a lot of that on the Aristocrats um, records. And there's some right very on. sensitive moments towards the back end of that record, which uh, I think kind of captures something of the sentimentality and um, fragility of, of what Grace sort of does. And then Karma Police is, I think, you know, in an in a entirely complementary fashion, kind of a default setting for what Johnny Barker has done and many of your, your acts. And so I'm interested now about what you think of your own sort of catalogue and your kind of developmental arc. Well, I'm still very proud of, um, from, a, my, from a very sentimental gooey period, uh, my sleepy kid stuff, <laughs> which I still get so embarrassed about. Shit, man. Um, there's a song on there called Summer Skies, and I still really, really like that. That was coming out of my first band, Jester, where I was like st- starting to get a grip on songwriting. Uh, and then I just sort of like, I don't know, popped that one out, but um, managed to record it quite well 
uh, with Reb Fountain doing backing vocals and a few players got on there and that was kind of the first time for me where I was like, oh wow, I made a really nice sounding recording on my own steam. Um, so that's got a special spot. Um, I think from my Barker record, Sleep, Sleepwalking, um, Haunted House was a goodie. I was learning how to use Pro Tools in over my head, like <laughs> trying really hard to keep it simple and uh, managed to pop that one out and that, that turned out really well. Simon Gooding did the mix and sort of brought it to life as well, so I'm very grateful for that. And uh, and then as a songwriter, I think my favorite song that I've put together is one called um, I Was a Teen Wolf 2 um, from the Aristocrats record. I was trying to write a Johnny Cash kind of ballad and then I took it to the to the band and they played at Surf 60s and it turned into this weird, jumpy, you know, thing, which I still can't really describe properly, but without a doubt, like beautiful recording from Cole, great playing from Jared and the boys, and uh, and it's my favorite piece of songwriting that I've done. And it's about fatherhood, and my pregnant wife is sitting upstairs about to drop a baby, like any day now, boys, it's terrifying. So writing about fatherhood, man, here it comes. Holy shit. That's poetic. We better let you go. It's good to have you home. Thanks, boys. It's good to be here.